I'll be reading this morning from Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Acts 2.14 But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit upon all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, even upon my bond slaves, bond slaves, both men and women. I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above, and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put to death. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. We'll pray. God, I thank you again for all that you've given to us, all that you've revealed to us through your word. And Lord Jesus, we just pray that um, our hearts would be just open to you to speak to us and to work in us, God, as you would please. And we thank you, God, that it is your, your will and your desire to speak to us and to, to bring us into greater conformity to your Son and enter into a pure and, and simple devotion to Jesus. So we pray, God, that, that your heart's desire for us would be accomplished as we look at your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, a couple weeks ago, um, we just got started with looking at Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the Church of Jesus Christ. I imagine that when Peter woke up that morning um, and they went about what they'd been doing ever since Jesus ascended up into heaven, and that was to go into the area of the temple, these 120, and to gather and wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit that Peter had little idea of what actually was going to happen. He certainly would have had no idea that they would all be speaking in tongues, no idea that by the end of that morning that 3,000 people would be saved, or that Peter himself would be delivering the sermon of his life. Um, amazing. I remember going down to Mexico a number of years ago, and I had a group of students with me, and I was sitting there enjoying a church service that I could understand nothing of because I don't speak Spanish. And then the, the pastor stopped and looked at me and says, okay, brother, you're on. <laughs> and I go, what are you talking about? And he goes, it's time for you to come up and preach. And so I only had enough warning between when he said that and the time it took me to stand up there, and I had to preach. A little bit like Peter all of a sudden, he's preaching a sermon. 
I can't say that 3,000 people came to Christ, <laughs> and I stopped going to Mexico. <laughs> but this was an amazing sermon, and particularly considering all that, um, and, and it's not that the sermon itself is amazing, but just what God's doing during this time. But it is really amazing to think about what has happened with Peter. And he's gone from being a guy who denied Jesus three times and being totally dejected. And the Lord Jesus, knowing that, had a special appearance where during those um, 40 days of being alive and still on earth, that he made a special appearance to Peter to encourage him. And now Peter's been fully embraced by this, by this group of believers and is already the de facto leader of the group. And, um, and so it, it's amazing. He's, he's courageous, he's convincing, he's contagious, he's certain. Um, and um, it's just so different than, than what we used to see um, not long before. And um, he's not cautious, he's not cowardly, he's just, there's life transformation that's taken place here with Peter. The sermon that he's going to give is simple, it's straightforward, it's sharp, it cuts to the quick. Um, it's truly God speaking through this man, and, and, and Peter himself cannot take credit for what the Lord is going to do. I've already noted two weeks ago when, when the Spirit of God was, was poured out on these individuals um, and they began to speak in tongues, we know that, that this gift of tongues, this experience of speaking in tongues was not solicited. They had not prayed about it, unlike is common today. It was not expected. Nobody knew that this would happen. It's nothing that's been prophesied prior to this. They just began to speak in tongues. They were known languages, which is uncommon to what is typical today when people claim to speak in tongues. But these people, there was no need for an interpreter because they were speaking languages that were known at the time. And they spoke of God's mighty deeds. And it's not necessarily um, the case that all 120 spoke in tongues. We know that some of them did, maybe all did. But then we need to remember that Christ appeared to 500 people while he was alive from the dead. Those 500 weren't here. And there's no indication that all of them spoke in tongues. So the point being is that tongues, at least from Acts, Acts chapter 2, cannot be proven to be um, the normative experience for everybody who receives the Holy Spirit. It was what was happening at this time for a small group of people, but not what was happening for all people. In fact, the 3,000, when they place their faith in Christ and are saved, there's no mention of any of them speaking in tongues. So what we see here is it says, is not to review the first paragraph that I didn't read this morning, but chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 to 13, we're told how the Spirit of God comes upon them. It says in verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak with their tongues. And another point we need to make, and this is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is so very important and there's a lot of confusion about things here. But we need to understand that these people, that are these 120, were already saved. Had they died before the Holy Spirit had been poured out in this way, they would have been in the presence of the Lord. Jesus made that very clear when he said in, in, in John 14, 15, 16, and he's talking to these men 
that they already knew the Lord, and he says, I'm going to heaven to prepare a place for you. I will come again. I will receive you to myself. These men were saved. And so this is not the time that they become saved. But for us today, the time that we're living in now, this is a transition time. Acts is that transitional life form has been described, so it's kind of hard to, to fully figure out. But we know from Romans 8, 9, that if any person today does not possess the indwelling Holy Spirit, he is not a Christian. If anyone does not have the Spirit of God, he does not belong to Christ. It's as simple as that. So that you could not have said about these men. They were already saved before the Holy Spirit was given to them. Today, a person is not saved until the Holy Spirit is given to them. So the filling here that takes place it's likely the filling that would be very parallel to what Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, where he says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. To come under the influence, be yielded, present yourself to God, and he will fill you. So they, yes, they were being indwelled, but they were not being saved. We are indwelt and saved at the same moment but we can continually be filled with the Holy Spirit. So there's a number of things that the New Testament says the Spirit of God does. One is that He regenerates, or He causes us to be born again from above, John 3, 5. He indwells us, Romans 8, 9, that I've already made mention of. He seals the believer until the day of redemption. So the Spirit of God is given as a kind of guarantee that once you've been saved, you will always be saved. And he is spoken of as that way, a guarantee of our salvation. We are sealed in the Holy Spirit until the day of our redemption. Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 4 speak of that. The New Testament also speaks of being baptized with the Spirit or being baptized into the Spirit. And this is being put into the body of Christ, the, new, the, the church um, that we are placed into. I don't believe the, that the New Testament speaks of being baptized by the Spirit. He is not the agent. Christ is the agent. Christ baptizes us with the Spirit, into the Spirit, and in doing so places us into the body of Christ, the church. 1 Corinthians 12 12 to 14, speaks about that. By the Spirit, we are placed into one body. So he regenerates, he indwells, he seals, he baptizes us and places us into the body of Christ. And we are filled with the Spirit where we are, are, are now at the um, disposal of, the, of, the, of God for him to use us. So all these things are ministries of the Spirit. So that being the backdrop, now Peter begins to preach, verse 14. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them. Again, he didn't wake up this, that morning saying, boy, this is going to be a good day to preach a sermon. He had no idea this was going to happen, so he wasn't preparing ahead of time, didn't have his notes ready, didn't even have his Bible with him, and he just stands up and begins to preach. And it's amazing what God did with this humble fisherman. So he says to him, men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. These men are not drunk. They thought they were drunk. 
We go back to verse 12, it says, And they continued in amazement and with great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, They are full of sweet wine. I don't know the difference between sweet wine and non-sweet wine. Um, I've been told that sweet wine is more um, um, alcohol, higher alcohol content, so you can get drunk faster on sweet wine. But it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. And so Peter's going, ridiculous. Now, if it were 8 o'clock at night, maybe that'd be a possibility. I don't know. But he's saying, 9 o'clock in the morning, we're not drunk. You can dismiss that. Now, next, it's interesting, but the, the point here, though, is why did they even assume this? And it's not because these men and women had a history of getting drunk. But it really, many times, a person's accusation says more about the accuser than it does about the accused. And we need to recognize that here, that this is not a statement about what they think was a tendency for these men. It would have said more about what was a tendency for them, that the accuser often reveals what's in his own heart by the nature of his accusation. But more to the point, Paul says The natural man or the unbeliever cannot give the right appraisal to spiritual things that are happening. He is always, in other words, going to look for a natural explanation to spiritual phenomena. And so these hearers are not saved. So they are natural men. And so when they see something that they can't comprehend, their go-to is to come up with a natural explanation for this. And so they go, they must be drunk. And so that's not surprising that they would do that. And so Peter doesn't doesn't just ridicule them or rebuke them, but he says, it's not reasonable, the explanation that you've come up with. And so Peter's going to give a reasonable response to their attack or their dismissal of what is happening. And then he, in, in this reasonable response... It's incredible to me and instructive that he, as we see so often in Scripture, that when there is some kind of thing that happens like this, Peter's immediate response is to go to Scripture in order to validate the experience. And he is able to do that. Again, remember, tongues was never mentioned in the Old Testament. And yet he is able to point to the Scripture that explains what's happening here. This is so huge. We're going to see this in other places in Acts coming up as well, where where the people, these new believers, are, are so quick to not let the experience itself become the determinative thing. They're not letting experience determine truth. But they're letting, but they're they know that the experience has to be judged by scripture. And if you can't point to scripture to validate the experience, then don't stand on the experience. And that's what Peter will be doing here. And so he turns to Joel chapter 2, and he's got this memorized. So I say, poor, humble fisherman. I mean, how many of us have memorized anything from the book of Joel? And, and, he's, and he's got it down. And so his mind immediately goes to Joel's prophecy, and, he, and Joel was prophesying about the last days. 
And, and he quotes him and says, It shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit upon all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, even upon my bond slaves, both men and women. I will in those days pour forth my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So the two things that are being emphasized here, one is that God is going to pour out his spirit upon all those, all mankind, but the assumption is all believing mankind, irrespective of their sex. So it's not going to be just men, in other words. Men and women alike are going to be equal recipients of God's spirit. That's the first thing that's being emphasized. And the second is that it results in prophesying. There's nothing in the Old Testament that said it would result in tongues. So the point here is that the tongues, once again, were known languages, but the big deal was not that they were speaking in other languages, but that men and women both are, 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 have been filled with the Spirit of God and are prophesying. And they happen to be prophesying using the means of tongues. So Peter does not put the emphasis on tongues. Peter puts the emphasis on what they are doing while speaking in tongues. And that is that they are prophesying. They were declaring the mighty deeds of God. And as I think I've already noted, the mightiest deed of God to this date is raising the dead. And then we would also, with a close second, be regeneration, salvation, that we are able to be born again. This is, these are the mightiest deeds of God. Christ has been raised from the dead, and we can be brought into union with God. It doesn't get any bigger than that. And so I think it's, those are the things they would have been speaking of. So the Holy Spirit is given to all believers, irrespective, male or female, bond or free, Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter. The Holy Spirit is given equally and fully to all who place their faith in Christ. And the consequence of that is they prophesy. Now we're into another big topic. What does that mean? And when we looked at 1 Corinthians, I spent some time on that. Would have been a year ago already. And, and essentially, I think it's not quite as mysterious as we often make it to be. In fact, Peter doesn't see it to be anything mysterious. He sees it as just the natural consequence of having the Holy Spirit. All Christians have the Holy Spirit. You wouldn't be a Christian if you didn't have the Holy Spirit. And all Christians prophesy. So it is a much broader deal than what was sometimes made of it today. Sometimes today we talk about, you know, it's a few people and they have the gift of prophecy and they'll give you a word of knowledge and, and blah, blah, blah. That's not how Peter sees it. He sees it as something that is true for all believers. Now, to take away the mysterious from it, maybe it doesn't for some of you, I don't know, but in the Old Testament, prophecy oftentimes had nothing to do with foretelling the future. It always had to do with hearing from God and speaking what you've heard. 100% of the time. God speaks to the person, and God speaks through the person. It always meant that. Sometimes it had to do with foretelling the future, but many times it did not. And what 
what Peter is doing again, and these others who are filled with the Spirit, is they are prophesying, and none of them are foretelling the future. None of them. All they're doing is hearing from God and allowing God to speak through them. That's sometimes something that we will be aware of. And many times we will not be aware of it. Because we don't have to be aware of it. But God communicates to His children. We are the bride of Christ. We are the children of God. It is a personal relationship. And God speaks to His people. And God speaks through His people. And whenever that's happening, even if we are unaware of it, and many times we will be unaware of it, it is still God's work and it is prophetic. I don't recall if I've said it here. I know I've, I've used the illustration sometimes at His Hill. We had a guest speaker many years ago who was asked to witness to one of the students at His Hill. I wasn't the director at the time, long before that. And everybody knew that this girl was not a Christian. And so with every guest speaker that came, they would bring the guest speaker to this, to this girl. Could you witness to this girl? Could you try to convince this girl? Because nobody can get through to her. And so everybody did. Nothing happened until one guest speaker. And I happened to be talking to him outside of his room at his hill. And, and here came a staff member and, and that student. And they come running up, and they are just excited because this girl finally understands, and she has just placed her faith in Christ. And so the guest speaker says, wow, that's wonderful, because he knew the history. Nobody else has been able to get through to her. And so he goes, he's curious. What did I say that finally resonated with you? And she told him. And then she skipped off. And so he and I were standing there, and he goes, man, that's amazing. And I go, yeah, that's really amazing. And he goes, well, the amazing thing is, I don't know what she's talking about. I have no recollection of saying that to that girl. And so that's God, see, just keeping him from being able to take pride that he was the one that got through to that girl. No, God got through to that girl. He just happened to use him at that time. But God is the one who opened that girl's heart and was, and was able to minister to her in a way that she understood and she placed her faith in Jesus. And so, but he was, he was the vessel. He was used, he heard, he spoke, but he couldn't recall. That's often the way it's going to be, so that you can't take any credit for it. And so I think, in that sense, what he did was prophetic. He was God's instrument at that time, to hear from God, to speak as from God, and then the result was God's result. And that's something that is happening more than we can possibly know. And that's the birthright. I don't know, I mean, that's just, it's just that strong. That is the birthright of every Christian, to be in relationship with God, to hear from God, and to be used by God to speak into the lives of other people. It's an amazing privilege that God's given us. And Peter believes that what is happening here. Is, is the fulfillment of that. But then he goes on, which is a little surprising, and he doesn't stop there at the end of verse 18. He continues on. And he talks about these other things that Joel spoke of. 
I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. Huh. Well, none of that happened. So is he wrong about the first half of the prophecy? When in the second half, none of that happened. I don't think he was wrong. I think that Joel didn't know that the front half of that prophecy would be fulfilled first, and there would be a 2,000-year gap before the second half is... Because this is the compression that we often see with, with prophetic messages in Scripture, that, there, that they, a, the timeline is compressed. And so the first part of the prophecy can be, for the New Testament audience, immediate. And the second half can be in the distant future. We looked at this recently at His Hill with our students with the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus is giving the lesser commission. There's the greater commission and there's a lesser commission. And in the lesser commission, He says to His 12 disciples, I'm sending you out to Israel. Go only to Israel. Don't go anywhere else. Don't take any money with you. Don't take a change of clothes with you. Don't even take a staff with you. And then He tells Him all these, all, they says all these things are going to happen, Okay. You're going to, you know, and, but then all of a sudden he says, and they're going to persecute you. They're going to deliver you up to be flogged and all these things. None of those things happened. And so what you see there is Jesus speaks to the immediate audience. And in the next breath, with hardly even a pause, he's speaking about something that has not yet happened and won't happen until the days of the tribulation. So this is not uncommon with how prophetic messages, messages that deal with the future are in Scripture. They'll compress the timeline and make it look like it's all simultaneous when it isn't necessarily. And so the second half of what Joel is saying has not yet been fulfilled. I believe it's not fulfilled until the Great Tribulation, that seven-year period just immediately prior to when Christ returns. And that's when the last days start. At the beginning of the tribulation, the last days begin, and they go all the way through to the end of the millennial reign of Christ. But Peter thinks that when the Holy Spirit has been given to men and women equally, all are prophesying that that is when it begins, the last days. And that they are right on the cusp of all of this being fulfilled and even of Christ returning and establishing his kingdom. That's going to become even clearer in Peter's thinking in the next chapter with his second sermon. He really believes that all of what Joel is saying could be fulfilled during their lifetimes. He was right about the first half. He was mistaken about the second half. That's not yet been fulfilled. So now verse 22. So he's gone to Scripture to validate their experience, which is so vital. Okay? If you cannot validate your experience from Scripture, then don't make your experience authoritative. Everybody has experiences. It may truly be from God, but you do not want to make doctrine out of that experience. You do not want to try and project that experience onto other people and say, this should happen to you because it's been life-changing for me. If you cannot validate it from Scripture, walk carefully, very carefully. And so now he turns to his focus on Christ and his resurrection. 
Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. So that's all powerful, what he's saying. God attested to him. God performed miracles. And these miracles were performed in your midst, and you know it. So he's talking to people who knew about Jesus, probably had seen Jesus, maybe had even seen the miracles, maybe even had been recipients of the miracles. And he says, this man, verse 23, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. So God knew what was going to happen. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And God raised him up again. And that is the first of ten more times that, that the Acts is going to emphasize the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These early believers really had one message. Jesus is alive. I mean, if you can understand that, I mean, I think even, time, even for us as Christians many times. I mean, so basically the very first sermon in Acts is an Easter Sunday sermon. Jesus is risen from the dead. Every sermon ought to be an Easter sermon. All the sermons in Acts are Easter sermons. Jesus is alive. If just we as Christians could allow ourselves to be just not moved beyond that truth and truly be gripped by that, there goes the anxiety. There goes the worry. There goes the depression. There goes all the anger and bitterness. Jesus is alive. I mean, think there's no other message here. Jesus is alive. And so that is the one message the church needs to be reminded of, and it is the one message the unbeliever needs to hear. Christ has been raised from the dead. Man. Now, you might think that this verse here, that he was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed him to the cross. You might think that's the most difficult verse in this chapter. Not for me. We're, and I hope we don't get there this, this Sunday. We'll see. But that's the, actually the harder verse is coming up in verse 38. But this I will point out to you. And I just doing some other reading and, and people a lot smarter than me with these things. Paul, I mean, Peter is, is sandwiching together without any hint of controversy or, or contradiction the sovereignty, the sovereignty of God, the omniscience of God, God knows what's going to happen before it happens. He is sandwiching that together, wetting it together with personal responsibility, free will. He sees no contradiction, no problem whatsoever. Neither should we. Now, are we going to fully understand all that? No. But it is not a contradiction. God knows everything that's going to happen, and people have free choices. The contradiction exists only in our own minds. It does not exist in the Word of God. 
It does not exist in the mind of God. It certainly didn't exist in the mind of Peter. He was delivered up by God according to the by the he was delivered up by the plan of God, nailed to the cross, put to death, crucified by men. It is very clear here. Peter never accused God of killing his son. Peter never accused God of murdering his son. It is incredible to me, to me that people actually believe that God killed his son, that God murdered his son. There is no hint of that in Scripture. God knew what was going to happen. God allowed what was going to happen. God planned for what was going to happen, but God did not kill his son. In fact, even Jesus said in John chapter 10, 17 to 18, no one takes my life. I lay it down of my own accord. No one takes my life. I lay it down of my own accord. Now this I will say concerning the omniscience of God. Omniscience means God knows everything. What God knows will happen is determined to happen. Because God cannot be mistaken about what he knows. Okay? So we would understand that. What God knows is going to happen is determined to happen because God cannot be mistaken about what he knows. God doesn't have any errors. God doesn't make mistakes. So if God knows that tomorrow something big is going to happen, you're going to win a million dollars and you didn't even play the lottery, okay? If God knows that's going to happen, then it is determined to happen because God cannot be wrong about what he knows, okay? But although all that happens is known by God and is therefore determined by God in the sense that it will happen according to his knowledge, all things that happen are not caused by God. That's the distinction. God knows what's going to happen, and because he knows it accurately, it is determined to happen, but that doesn't make God the cause of all that happens. God is not the cause of Jesus dying on the cross. Godless men nailed him to the cross. Not God. God didn't cause it to happen. He knew it was going to happen, and because he knew it, it was determined to happen, but it's not the cause. Many times I've made reference to Romans 5, even recently with the death of two grandchildren. God knew that would happen. He was not surprised by it. And because God knew it, it was determined to happen. But God did not cause the death of those babies. That is a fact. Because Scripture says that sin came into this world because of a man, not because of God. And because of that sin entering into the world, death spread to all men. We die because of sin. And there is sin because of a man. God did not bring sin and death into this world. Is he still sovereign over sin and death? Absolutely. Can he take all things and turn them and work them for good, bring good from all things? Absolutely. 
He's that kind of sovereign God. But being sovereign does not make him the cause of everything that happened. It means he's in control of everything that happens. I hope that helps. Is that very good, huh? <laughs> Verse 24, so God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Impossible for death to hold Jesus because he is life itself. That, again, should truly encourage us. It is impossible for death to win. And when you've received the life of Christ, Christ who is life, and we've received him, and eternal life is in us, the death that we die is so temporary. It is impossible to be held by death. Because Jesus, the life of Christ, is infinitely greater than death. There's not even a comparison. It's like light being greater than darkness. David prophesied concerning Christ and death not holding him when he says, I was always beholding the Lord in my presence, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted Moreover, my flesh also will abide in hope because thou wilt not abandon my soul to Hades, nor will you allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life that will make me full of gladness with thy presence. Brethren, now Peter talking, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried And his tomb is right over there, and he could point to it. His bones are in that tomb. That is not the case with Jesus. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants upon his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. That he, the Christ, Jesus, was was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, which all are witnesses. We all witness this. God raised him up from the dead. As public as his crucifixion was, so was his resurrection. Over 500 people saw him alive from the dead. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for thy feet. Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Again, the sovereignty of God and the personal responsibility that comes with free will for men. This Christ, attested to you by God, delivered up, 
raised up by God, prophesied of by David, and a second time raised up by God, and we are all witnesses, exalted to the right hand of God. And now that he is at the right hand of God, he has poured out the Holy Spirit, verse 33, as he promised. And then the conclusion, God. This is the only reasonable conclusion that a person could come to based upon the evidence that Peter's presented. God has made Jesus Lord and Christ, Messiah, Israel. Don't miss this another time. He walked this earth for all those years, three years going around doing all these wonders and signs and miracles so that you might know who it was, he was and you nailed him to a cross. Don't miss another opportunity. It's interesting that one of the things that comes out of this sermon is that it is filled with the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And none of these Jews are going, I've got a theological problem with that. God is one. You've just said God is three. How does that reckon with Scripture? Nobody had an issue with it. Because they knew the Old Testament never presented God as one person. We think that's the case, and it's just not. The doctrine of the Trinity goes all the way back to Genesis 1. Let us make man in our own image. The plurality of us and our. This is not a new doctrine. It's not fully developed in the Old Testament, but it's there. And when Peter speaks about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, nobody is having any issue with what he's saying. The only question is going to be, what will they do with the truth? They crucified Jesus, and God has raised him from the dead. And the story is not over. He is now Lord and Christ, and he is willing to give his spirit to those who place their faith in him. What are you going to do with that? Well, they were convicted. Verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. Conviction, Oswald Chambers says, is an extremely rare thing. It is a God thing. No man can bring conviction to another person's heart. Only God can do this. It is extremely rare. Chambers also says that when God brings you to that point of conviction, you do not care what anyone else thinks. All you care about is what God thinks. This is why David said, my, when he says, God, I have sinned before you and you alone. He wasn't saying, I have a sinned against Bathsheba or sinned against the nation of Israel, but he's saying, God, my sin is before you. And the one thing that he was occupied with is his relationship with God. And that is where conviction really does its work, is where do I stand in relation to God? This is, goes beyond shame. This goes way beyond embarrassment. This is a brokenness. And when we are undone, 
We have been exposed, not before men, we could care less, but we have been exposed before God. We are raw, naked, vulnerable before God, and you say, God, have mercy upon me. The true conviction that only God can bring. And so they said, what shall we do? Peter responds, and this is a confusing verse. One of the most confusing in all the Bible. Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I printed off a paper last night. The Gospel and Water Baptism, a study of Acts 2.38. The Water Baptism is just part of it. Repentance is the other part. And this author gives six major views on how to interpret this verse. It won't bless you to read it. (laughs) It is a confusing verse. So many people go to this verse and say, you have to be baptized with water in order to be saved. Other people would go to this verse and say that you have to mention repentance every time as you present the gospel or a person cannot be saved unless you explicitly mention repentance. The problem with both of those views are that there are a number of other gospel presentations and acts where neither baptism nor repentance is mentioned. Now, I've said before, repentance is a, is a big one, depending on how you define it. And if you're defining it as a condition to being saved, as a separate thing from faith, then I think there's a potentially a big problem. Because if that's the case, that I have to repent before I place my faith in Christ, then how can I ever be sure that I'm saved? Because nobody has full consciousness of all their sin. So no one can fully repent of all their sin. The scripture says that our salvation is dependent upon faith in Jesus Christ. So when we look at Cornelius, in the middle of of Peter's sermon, how rude can you get? He gets saved. He hasn't repented. He hasn't been baptized. He simply believes what Peter's saying, and he's saved. When we come to Acts chapter 15 and the Jerusalem council, and they are really wrangling over what do they tell these new Gentile converts? Do they need to get circumcised? Do they need to keep the law? And these Jerusalem elders say there is nothing they need to do other than place their faith in Christ. They didn't say repent. They didn't say get baptized. And then we come to the Philippian jailer later in Acts. And he says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul will say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. So if you take repentance as a prerequisite to salvation, then it seems to me you have the potential of never being sure 
about your salvation. But if you understand repentance as part and parcel with faith, that repentance is a change of mind concerning Jesus Christ, and that you now see Jesus is Lord, he is Christ, that he is risen from the dead, and there's been a change of mind that's taken place, then yes, there's no problem in saying, repent and believe, because you're seeing that belief is incorporated with repentance. It's not a separate precursor. It is not a precondition to faith. It is part and parcel with faith. I don't think there's a problem. Another problem that's interesting here is Peter doesn't even tell him to believe. What must we do? And they're not saying, what must we do to be saved? That even part, see, we make some big assumptions here potentially that, that perhaps aren't correct. I don't know. But they don't say, what must we do to be saved? And Peter doesn't say, believe. So there's a lot about this verse that is difficult. That's why we don't build our doctrine off of passages like this. But we go to the clear doctrinal passages that say, this is what you must do to be saved. They may have been simply asking, what do we do to get rid of our guilt for having crucified the one who is Lord and Christ? Some would argue that these people were saved at the moment that they were convicted. I don't think that's a stretch. What are they convicted of? Jesus is raised from the dead. He is Lord and Christ. Why would they be convicted if they haven't believed? Maybe, there's, maybe they're not one in the same. But I have a huge stretch to say these people were saved at that point of conviction when they recognized Jesus is raised from the dead and that he is all that Peter's saying that he is. And then they're going, now, what do we do about what we've done We crucified the righteous one. What do we do with our guilt? Because it was a national guilt. See, they were right at the point of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit back in Matthew chapter 12. And Jesus begins to speak in parables because of this national guilt. And Jesus was saying, I tell you that this generation is the worst generation that ever lived. And they're recognizing now, perhaps, that in the day of judgment, there is going to be no excuse for these people. And they are saying, what can we do? And it may be that Peter is saying, this nation needs to repent. And this nation needs to seek forgiveness for what it did concerning Jesus. And I kind of think that he doesn't feel bound by that formula in Matthew 28, 18 and 19. That we are to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Peter doesn't even go there. Apparently, he thinks that the issue here, it may be another indication that this is not about salvation. That he's saying the issue here is that you begin to identify with the one you crucified. Instead of rejecting him, accept him. Instead of kicking him off as the stumbling block, that you recognize that he is the foundation the cornerstone. Repent. And then it would seem for the forgiveness of sins would go with the repentance. 
and you, perhaps the nation, shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a hard verse. This we do know. Salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ. Faith alone in Christ alone. I know that Tozer says, every person who ever receives anything from God must have a conscious need, a conscious and vital sense of lack. And these people now have been woken up to their need. And that would be true for everybody who comes to faith in Christ. They must recognize their need. Tozer would just go off on on saying there is no need for repentance. Hates that thought. And I understand where he's coming from. And I am not saying that. My view is repentance and faith are inseparable. True faith is a repentant faith. Because you have turned from trusting something else that you've been trusting in all your life to trusting in Jesus Christ. But I don't necessarily see them as separate works. But this we know. When the scripture speaks of salvation, it says, place your faith in Jesus Christ and you shall receive eternal life. It's that simple. And with that, I'll close us in prayer. God, I thank you again for your word. And God, we are so dependent upon you as you did with these people to pierce our hearts, to illumine our minds. Because we need both done. We need our minds illumined to what the truth is. We need our hearts to be pierced by that truth. We're not asking you, God, just to give us clarity so that we might believe rightly and just have the right doctrinal statement. But we know that you're after that and much more. Hearts and minds illumined and hearts pierced by the truth. That we would come to Jesus being undone, tired of the futility and vanity of pursuing life on our terms apart from Christ. And that we would come back to that simple yet powerful truth that Christ is raised from the dead. He lives. And I pray, God, that we would each day, each moment, increasingly live in that truth, live from Christ who is alive, that he would be the very dynamic of our lives as we're going to see expressed here in this book of Acts, that the only explanation for our lives can be that Jesus is alive and he lives in us. So I thank you for your willingness to do this, God. And we pray that we would would just grow increasingly in the reality of the risen, living Jesus Christ. In his name, amen.